0: talk.
1: Thank you.
0: So welcome, everyone. Glad to see you all here this morning. Um, We're going to start today with um, a thank you to our Cook, Eat, Learn team for providing us a delicious and healthy breakfast. And um, of course, when we have the Cook, Eat, Learn team here, um, we have our trivia uh, trivia contest. So um, this week's theme was cooking with kids, and I think we had... At least one kid. Yes, two kids. <laughs> two kids two helping us out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a special treat. Um Three Uh, We're all kids at heart. Um, And um, we encourage you all to participate in the trivia trivia contest. The contest actually focused on last week's theme, uh, last um, time's theme, which was fruits. And the question for today was, what percent of the plate is recommended to be healthy fruits and veggies? And this is based on the uh, My Healthy Plate guidelines. And we had four correct uh, answers today, so at random... Very exciting process. Oh, I don't know how to say who that is. Die, die, die. anybody want to tell us who? D D. Uh, somewhere in the crowd. Great. So D, uh, and the answer is fifty percent of the plate. And um, so come on down to get your prize, which is five beautiful Longwind farm tomatoes, which are of course a fruit. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so please participate. You can see the prizes are excellent. Um, and with that, we will um, move on to, to our Grand um, Rounds presenter today. I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, Margaret Berman. Dr. Art Furman earned a dual PhD in counseling and social psychology from the University of Minnesota. She held visiting assistant professorships at the University of Minnesota and at the University of Maryland before joining the staff of the Department of Psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine in 2008 as an assistant professor. She's the co-director of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Psychiatric Associates Mood Disorders Service. And since coming to Dartmouth, she has spearheaded the development and study of the Accept Yourself intervention for obese women with depression. Dr. Berman has provided teaching, clinical supervision, and mentoring to numerous undergraduate, graduate, and medical students, and she's published and presented research on PTSD, depression, and eating disorders in regional, national, and international forums. She's the current president of the Society for Counseling Psychology's section for the promotion of psychotherapy science. She has no conflicts of interest with regards to her presentation today, and I welcome her to challenge us all to think about how we think about uh, providing care for our patients with obesity.
1: Thank you so much for that lovely introduction, appreciate that. So as I mentioned to you a little bit before, we are collecting this kind of institutional level data about attitudes toward weight and shape among our faculty and staff. Um, so I'm hoping you'll be helpful with that and by answering honestly, I love this sort of joke that um, uh, that MS Word's clip art helpfully provided, you know, what do you consider to be your main weakness? Honesty. Okay. You know, we've all had that moment. Um, but if you'd fill out the surveys now before we get started and, you know, turn them over, don't put your name on them, I don't need to know you don't need to share. And in a few minutes, if you just want to pass them down this direction towards Kelly and Jess, and Jess will pick them up and give them to me. And thank you so much for your willingness to do that. Appreciate it. i 'm going to be talking with you a little bit today about size-based bias and discrimination in obesity care and in healthcare care in general, and I guess my theme or tagline is that I think our patients deserve better, and hopefully I can persuade you of that as well. Uh, there's the learning outcomes objectives for the talk. I'm not going to be I wish I had some conflicts of interest to disclose, and <laughs> definitely won't be talking about medications today. Um, so Maybe the place to start is in terms of how our obese patients experience our care. What are they feeling and thinking when they come into the room, when they leave the room after a patient encounter? What's going through their minds? And a lot of providers are happy to tell me that the patient's experience isn't necessarily what was intended or even necessarily what happened in the room. We've all had that experience with a patient where you said something you thought was really clear, and the patient heard something completely different, right? Uh, But it's useful to start with the patient's experience because that uh, sort of is the frame that tells us what's happening for them. Uh, We know that even before obese patients come into our office, they are facing a harsh world, that obese patients face Uh, intense stigma, intense discrimination, actually in virtually every area of life. In employment, in romantic relationships, at every phase of life, beginning from really earliest childhood uh, all the way to the end of life. So this is uh, obesity, stigma, and discrimination is something that if you're an obese person, you can't get away from. Uh, But it also applies in medical care. We know that BMI all by itself is associated with poor patient satisfaction. So Uh, If you are overweight or obese, or the larger your BMI, the more likely you are to say that you had an unsatisfying healthcare encounter just all by itself. Uh, And obese patients do perceive that they are treated in a biased way by healthcare providers. And in fact, we're sort of among the worst offenders, that when you ask folks to rank their experiences of obesity stigma, doctors, healthcare professionals come in second. The only people who uh, obese patients are likely to say are more likely to um, apply stigma to me are family members, so that 's kind of bad news. Uh, Most obese and overweight women uh, report receiving inappropriate comments or what they perceived as inappropriate comments about weight from a doctor. This is difficult for us to hear, right, because there are increasing pressures to talk about BMI and talk about obesity with our patients and to counsel them about weight loss. So how do you know when you're making an inappropriate comment? But nevertheless, this is what patients perceive. Uh, And I should tell you, some of the research I'm going to share with you today has been done on both sexes. A lot of it's been done only on women, uh, which is a little bit unfortunate. We know that obesity stigma is similar for men, but not uh, not as intense as it is for women. Uh, And this isn't, uh, you would hope, right, that if you're coming specifically for obesity care, that if you're coming for care specific to that concern, that you might get more sensitive or stigma-free care, but we know that that's not the case. That patients who seek bariatric surgery say that they feel that their doctors don't understand the difficulty of their condition, and if they're coming for behavioral weight loss, coming to see a psychologist like me or someone to give behavioral help, they say, weight is blamed for most of my medical problems, I love this little uh, comment, no one investigates why I'm obese, they just put me on another diet. They're so concerned with treating me, they don't care much about sort of my experience of this problem. And they also say my medical providers see me as a second-class citizen. So some pretty negative feelings in terms of what our patients are experiencing. Well, that tells you a little bit about sort of out in the world as a whole or out in the nation as a whole, but I thought it might be useful to tell you a little bit about what I know, which isn't very much, but about what I know about what our local patients say. What do our patients here at DHMC say about our care? Uh, This project actually was sort of a sideline. I've been, uh, as Kelly mentioned, I've been developing this intervention called Accept Yourself, which is a treatment for obese, depressed women that's designed to enhance both physical and mental health. And we've been doing some pilot trials of that study. And as part of that, we asked people, What did you think of our intervention? And we asked some qualitative questions. The focus is not on their healthcare experiences and it's not on stigma, Uh, it's really just How did this compare to other things you've tried for your obesity and depression? And so these stories weren't the focus. But I was working with a medical student, Stephanie Morton. If any of you have had the chance to work with her, she's over at uh, Geisel Medical Student, I think now in her third or maybe even her fourth year, I don't know. Um, But she's fantastic. And she got really curious about these sort of unsolicited stories that came up over the course of uh, these qualitative interviews that we did with our pilot participants, and she collected some of these stories and did a little research project on them. So this is what our patients say about getting care kind of in our community. And I'm just going to give you some examples. Um, so here was a patient, she says, It was just how to handle when you meet with your doctor about your weight and stuff, when they are, you know, how do you handle that situation with them? And they have very distinct ideas of where you need to be and what should be happening, and then you feel like everything you may have is being blamed on yourself, on that, your obesity. Any bariatric or whatever type physician, they just want you to have surgery. I never know how to handle that one. I go in and I sort of end up curling into a ball and nodding my head yes. This is not how we like to leave our patients, right? This disempowered, fearful patient who feels like she just has to acquiesce to whatever we're saying. And then I said to her, it sounds like it's shaming. And she said, yeah, and it's like, well, do you think I don't understand every day when I look in the mirror? You, you know, is this invisible? You'd think that if it was so easy to do, I wouldn't just do it. And so that's sort of a feeling she's had. And she's asking, do physicians get training in this? What do you think? Did physicians get training in how to handle this situation? Not really. Um, Here was a different patient. So she says, uh, we'd asked her a little bit about what else she did uh, to address her obesity besides coming to this program. And she said, uh, I forget what she'd said sort of right before that, but she says, other than that, it's either scolding by your physician, or, you know, I tried some medication, but the rest was on my own. And I asked her, well, how'd it compare? And she said, well, scolding's horrible. I think we can all relate to that. I don't think I like to be scolded by my physician either. So, okay, this was less horrible. That's good. She says, I don't think it's helpful at all because you just beat yourself up and hate yourself even more and wonder why you aren't strong enough to be able to do this. And so I think it's sort of counterproductive. And she has an interesting way of describing weight loss medication. She says medications are like false hope because you take the medicine and then as soon as you stop taking it, you just put the weight right back on, and then that feels twice as bad. So I guess maybe it's because this treatment wasn't focused on weight loss and how successful or unsuccessful you were. It wasn't like the fear of coming in every week and having to step on a scale and being... uh, and being nauseous on your way there, wondering, starving yourself the day before so that you can try to be okay when you step on the scale, and feeling like you have to justify it or you're a failure. It wasn't about the weight loss. It was about all these other things that maybe contribute to why you do what you do and why you are who you are. So she's describing our intervention. But you can really sense the shame she's had in the past. And then finally, this was a lovely, uh, one thing we noticed in doing this research is that the patients varied a tremendous amount in how much physical activity they got. So even though all of these patients, by definition, were both obese, and female, and had major depressive disorder. We had some women in the pilot study and now in the little randomized control trial we're doing that had essentially no physical activity and were totally sedentary. And we had some women that either because of their work or their uh, leisure interests, were doing hours and hours of of high level demanding vigorous physical activity a day. And this was an example of a woman who was a fitness instructor and was doing a lot of very active physical work. And so she said, she talked about having these conversations with her doctor about physical activity. She says, I think just generally being okay with that aspect and being able to go, now go back to the doctor and say, look, your crazy little book that you recommended is not the solution. So this doctor had provided her with a book on physical activity. And she says, but I have to say in her defense, most people don't believe that I exercise all the time. And I think they think it's just a quick fix, you know. Oh, yeah, do some Pilates and you'll be fine. I'm like, I've been doing Pilates for 10 years. She was a Pilates instructor. Um, It's not that I haven't been doing it. So this is sort of how our patients are describing our care. But at this point, I hope you're wondering, and I know you're probably thinking, this is how patients perceive care, but is this the care we're actually providing, you know, that Uh, it's tough. It's a sensitive situation when you talk with people about their weight in a a patient care setting, right? It isn't easy to do. Maybe uh, patients aren't accurately perceiving sort of the care we're providing. So what can I tell you about what we know about how medical professionals think and feel and behave towards their obese patients? Well, I can tell you in a word, are we biased? The answer is unfortunately yes, we are. Uh, We do know that medical professionals, and it doesn't really matter what form of medical professional you are, that we do hold negative attitudes, on average, about obese patients. And that includes physicians, allied providers, including me. I'm a psychologist. Medical students. uh, And perhaps even more distressing You don't get out of this if you're an expert in obesity. So, there's now been really a decade and a half or so, or maybe even two decades, of research done on obesity experts attending obesity specialty care conferences. So, these are people at the very top of this field. And, uh, you know, somebody got wise maybe 10 or 15 years ago and said, maybe we should assess bias in this uh, population. And, in fact, uh, found that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, indeed, Uh, we could find evidence for both implicit and explicit, and I'll talk with you what that means in a minute, bias against obese patients by obesity experts. But what's sort of even more depressing is that that's getting worse rather than better. So the more recent surveys of obesity experts at obesity specialty care conferences show increasing bias against obese patients rather than decreasing. That makes some sense. The culture is becoming more strongly biased against obesity, but uh, it's still depressing to hear. So what is it what are those biases what are we saying about our patients and I'm going to talk about two kinds of bias one are explicit stereotypes. So what I mean by explicit is they're conscious. You know you hold these attitudes. You can tell me if I ask you what you think. When I asked you to fill out um, the survey in front of you, that I'm asking you about your explicit attitudes. You know, I ask you, tell me. So what do people tell us when we ask them in research? Medical professionals say, first of all, that obese patients are bad patients. They're not good in the patient role, in the sense that they, we report that they're not compliant with treatment on average, they're not motivated they're frustrating to treat, and also we blame them for their obesity. We say this is the, a result of something they're doing. But maybe even more distressing than that, we also report that they're bad people, um, uh, that both medical students and medical professionals are willing to say that they're obese patients or that an obese avatar is uglier, lazier, sloppier, more unattractive than a normal weight avatar, that they're less healthy. And I think this was a really interesting study. So this was a study that was done uh, in ERs, And it was done uh, with residents and um, medical students and then attendings. And they were looking at what did medical students and residents get taught about humor in the ER uh, uh, setting? What kind of humor got used there? And what were they taught was okay in that setting? And the focus was not on obesity. They were just asking about humor. But they found that obesity was the one area where medical students and residents said, this is fair game. It's considered okay to make derogatory jokes towards obese patients in the ER, because they said these patients are to blame for this problem. Uh, So this is sort of interesting. But I think maybe most telling why such negative attitudes is because they make us feel bad as providers, that um, obese patients make us feel we're poorly trained, we're not well equipped to help our obese patients. We feel like when we're working with those patients, we're less effective, and we don't like working with obese patients. And I think that you know, even if you don't resonate with the uh, other pieces of this, I think a lot of folks resonate with this. It's frustrating. Patients come in with obesity. They want help with their weight loss. You'd like to help them. How does that go? How do you feel about it? Is it easy to treat patients with obesity for obesity? Raise your hands if you think it's super easy. Can't wait to see a patient like that. It's so easy to do. <laughs> Raise your hand if you think it's somewhat difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. So what about... Uh, these explicit attitudes. What can I tell you? As I, as I mentioned up till now, I've been telling you about the sort of national scene or perhaps the international scene. But what about here locally? Uh, thank you if you were willing to contribute to this effort uh, today. I really appreciate that. And uh, feel free, you can kind of continue to pass your surveys down to Jess if you haven't already. But uh, the survey I used with you today is not one I made up. It's been used with medical professionals and particularly medical students. There was a really big study that was done using this in instrument with, yeah, about 4,800 medical students around the country. And the questions I asked you draw on disliking fat patients, blaming fat patients for their uh, fatness, their obesity, and also fear of fat patients. And this is collected a little bit of data. You can see it's not a big N, you know, double digits, not triple digits, of different providers in different uh, faculty meetings here, and compared them to what You know the national sample of med students looks like we do a little better on dislike, and you'll see most people are not willing to say that they dislike uh, obese patients. That you know, even in the medical student sample, it's less than ten percent. I think it's you know nine or eight percent. And in our in our setting, you know, we're not endorsing. I I don't like these patient population, at least not explicitly. Uh, In terms of do you blame the patient for their obesity, you can see we again do quite a bit better than the med students. So, uh, you know, faculty I think have an advantage, and and we here at DHMC are maybe even better trained than the average, you know, medical student. But uh, 30% of the medical students endorsed those items about blame. In our uh, in our setting here, it's more like less than 10. But we're fearful. We're fearful of becoming fat. We're fearful of fat sort of rubbing off. That is something that a fair number of us are dealing with and struggling with. And these are explicit attitudes. This is just me asking folks what you think, what you're willing to admit to. You might be, uh, might be another way of thinking about this. But there's another way of looking at it, too, and that's implicit bias. So implicit biases are unconscious biases, or it might even not be fair to call them biases. You might just call them associations. That this is way back in the back of your mind, your subconscious or your unconscious, what do you know about what it means to be obese? Or what do you think way back there? And we know that even if you reject the explicit biases, you know, you circled zero on all the questions I asked you about explicit bias, even if you reject those stereotypes, you may still hold these implicit biases and you may still be affected by them even though you're possibly unaware of them. And how do you, it's, if it's unconscious, how do you measure it? I mean, I can't exactly ask you about it, right? Well, this is controversial, and there's maybe a number of different ways to look at it. But one common way of looking at implicit bias is with something called the implicit associations test. How many of you have heard of the IAT? Some of you have heard of it, yeah. And uh, I'll give you a little example of how this works. Let me pull out of my slideshow here for a second. It's... Back to that. So if you go to the Project Implicit webpage, you can choose a test. Here they're choosing the race IAT, but there's a weight IAT too. And it shows you black and white faces and asks you to categorize them. Are they black or are they white? Then it shows you good and bad words and asks you to categorize them. Is that a good word or a bad word? Then it puts them together. On one side, white and good. On one side, black or bad. And you organize both words and faces. And it switches that up a couple of times. So it, uh, before, white went with good. Now it goes with bad. So it'll let you categorize it. And after you've done all that, it gives you these results. This person, it looks like, uh, had a slight automatic preference for white compared to black. Um, Sort of how that works. So what it's looking at is how easily and quickly you can make those accurate associations. And like you say, that one uh, that I just showed you is with race. If you go to the Project Implicit website, you can see dozens of these different um, assessing different implicit attitudes, one of the options is to assess your implicit attitudes about weight, uh, and it will tell you both your result and then where you stack up compared to sort of their norming samples. Uh, it's worth taking a look at. If you've never taken an IAT for weight, I encourage know, you do one thing as a result of coming to this talk. I'd encourage you to do that. What's the difference? Well. Explicit stereotypes predict conscious behavior, which makes some sense, right? So it predicts what you think verbally. If I ask you, what do you think about fat patients, you can tell me. It also predicts your conscious decision making. So if somebody comes in who has obesity and they have some health concerns, your conscious attitudes are going to dictate sort of your conscious uh, choices about what to do. But these implicit biases also predict behavior. They predict nonverbal behavior. How much eye contact do I make with you? How much rapport do I build with you in our uh, visit today? And they also predict your decision-making under conditions of cognitive burden. So the end of your day, the end of your week, you know, the patient you see on Friday at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock or, God forbid, 6 or 7 o'clock, depending on how late you're there. You're tired. You know, you're late to your kid's game. The decisions you make then are going to be driven by these unconscious implicit stereotypes. And so you're vulnerable, even if you reject the explicit stereotypes. So it's worth assessing and giving some idea of what attitudes you have. And I've given you, you have the handout in front of you, so you can go and try project Implicits uh, assessment. Well, I sort of already tipped my hand a little bit, but maybe these biases wouldn't matter so much if we could just privately keep them inside our own heads. Right? It doesn't matter so much if I have negative attitudes, if it doesn't harm my patient care, it doesn't harm my patient outcomes. But as I already sort of intimated, we do know that these implicit and explicit biases lead to discrimination. Um, and. There's less research comparatively on this, but this is what I can tell you. Uh, We do know that physicians spend less time with obese patients, and they offer them less counseling. And they do less of the sort of motivational interviewing or relationship building, rapport building, than they do with normal weight or underweight patients. this is kind of an interesting couple of experimental studies here. This one in particular where they put uh, actors who were posing as patients in fat suits. And they had identical patients going in with identical concerns. The only thing that's different is how I appear um, in, my, uh, in my costume. And, in fact, they got different diagnoses. So same patient, same uh, presenting concerns. Uh, and they were standardized, of course, what they were saying in the, in the interaction. But if I look obese, you're going to uh, diagnose me differently. Also, they make different recommendations to obese patients versus normal weight patients who report the same symptoms. What are the differences? They're more likely to uh, provide a normal weight um, participant or a normal weight patient with a medical uh, suggestion. Prescribe a medicine, you know, prescribe PT, prescribe some kind of medical intervention. With obese patients, they're more, more likely to prescribe lifestyle change. So sort of interesting, right? Um, and one of the things I think is interesting about that is I wonder if that means we're under prescribing lifestyle change to our normal weight patients. But, you know, it's sort of an interesting thing to wonder about. Um, but even if your behavior is pretty good, look around your office a little bit. That it's possible to, and in fact, patients report in qualitative research that they feel dismissed by the room itself. What is the art on the wall? You know, how many of you have magazines in your in your waiting room that are sort of very body shaming or negative about uh, fat bodies or prescribing weight loss right there in the women's magazine? Uh, And also, does your chair fit? All the patients who come, you know, the chairs in the waiting room and the chairs in your office, do they fit the patients? Am I trying to squeeze myself into the chair or worry if I'm going to break the chair? It's not that hard to have an armless chair, for example. Does the gown fit me? Is my dignity preserved? And probably my favorite example of this is blood pressure cuffs. Um, I think now, how many of you have a, a range of blood pressure cuff sizes available to you if you take vitals? Yeah, now we're pretty good about this. But for a long time, we weren't good about it. And actually, if I tell you... Obesity is associated with hypertension. True or false? True, yeah. And is that a brand new finding, and I'm telling you something that's just straight off the press 2016, or is that a really old finding? Yeah, this is not, if you're excited by that piece of information, I'm a little worried about what rock you've been living under. You know, this is old information. It's old data. But here's the trouble with that. Were there large-sized blood pressure cuffs when we were doing research on obesity and hypertension in the 1950s? Turns out there weren't. And in fact, there was a paper that came out in the 1980s, so that's not brand new either, that said, gosh, the difference if you put on a correct size cuff versus a too small cuff is about 8 to 10 millimeters of mercury. And what do we find in the research literature is the difference between obese patients and normal weight patients? Gosh, it's about 8 to 10 millimeters of mercury. And in fact, there was a paper came out in the 1980s that said, perhaps some of this correlation is purely artifactual. You know, literally just because the researchers were using the wrong size cuff. So you need to be using the right size cuff. That's the upshot there. And in most of you it, it sounds like R. But it's more than just uh, that you're going to get bad data out of it. It's also dismissive of patients. It sends the message, you don't belong here. So how does this affect, you know, okay, maybe even that doesn't matter. You know, maybe it doesn't matter if we behave in a discriminatory way as long as it doesn't harm our patient's health. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of different ways these can harm patient care outcomes. This model comes from Sean Phelan. Uh, he has a really great article. You see I've got a little number up there on the on the title there that'll point you in your references to this article. Terrific article that reviews the literature on weight bias in medical care. I've drawn on a lot of Sean's ideas, as I've shared with you today. But he has this lovely model for how uh, Stigma and discrimination in healthcare setting can affect outcomes. So you can see it can affect it relatively directly. If I see an obese patient and I have a negative attitude, um, let's see if maybe I can get my pointer to work. Yeah. So if I see an obese patient, I have a negative attitude, then I'm making poor decisions, and that leads straight to poor outcomes. So that's not all that difficult to understand. Um, but same thing if the environment is threatening if I behave in a stigmatizing way. And maybe I don't do this out of any conscious uh, malice or any conscious poor attitude. It's literally just the end of the day, and I'm operating on those implicit attitudes we talked about. Or maybe I really do have some negative attitudes explicitly. But all of those things may make the patient not want to come see me. I'm just not going to go see the doc at all. Um, I'll see him or her, but boy, am I stressed and unhappy in my patient care encounter. I come, I see the, see the doctor, I'm not particularly stressed about it, but I'm not interested in doing what he or she has to say either. Or I'm that patient who's curled up in a ball and just nodding my head yes. Is that good patient-provider communication? Not so good, right? And so all of those things can lead to poor outcomes. And we'll talk in a second that even if you don't have any of these um, provider or, in, or interpersonal problems, it can lead directly to poor outcomes too. What do we know about the impact? So that's a theoretical model. What do we know about it empirically? We do know that, and I think this is just really tragic, right? Obese patients underutilize care. They are not, co- and how good a health outcome are you going to have if you're not using care appropriately? Right? It's not going to go well. So these patients go to fewer preventative care visits, uh, they don't go to see their primary care doctor. And they get fewer and later cancer screenings, both for breast and cervical and colorectal cancer. So what happens when your patients uh, aren't getting their breast cancer screenings? Well, it means you're seeing just as much breast cancer, but a lot later on in the process, right? And You're going to have a lot more morbidity, a lot more mortality. You start to ask yourself, why is it that there's obesity associated with all of these diseases? Well, maybe part of it is because you're not getting treatment for those diseases, or not getting treatment early enough for it to do much good. Um, And this is kind of an interesting, it's just one study, and I don't want to belabor the point too much, but sometimes uh, physicians or healthcare providers will say to me, but if I don't talk about weight, and if I don't uh, make it clear to my patient that I think they are overweight and obese, and that I think that's bad, and that they need to do something about it, how are they ever going to get motivated to do any weight loss? And what I tell physicians is, I promise you your patient has eyes and sees in the mirror. And I promise your patient is aware that uh, obesity is associated with poor health, health outcomes. You know, I, I promise you they know that. And it turns out that your judgment to them is not a motivational force. There's just one kind of interesting study that found that if I, as a patient, perceived negative judgment from you as a provider about my weight, I didn't lose as much weight. And we'll talk about why that might be in a second. But if you're worried about not providing adequate motivation, and incur- I can assure you that you can set that worry aside. One thing I think is really interesting about this, though, is that the stress of stigma and discrimination—and this is not necessarily from healthcare providers. This is that experience of living in a fat body out in the world. Um, just the stress of stigma and discrimination may have direct impact on um, obesity-associated disease, and. So one indicator of this is that in large uh, representative national samples epidemiological data, it turns out that weight dissatisfaction is a stronger predictor of health outcomes than BMI itself. So it doesn't matter so much what my BMI is as how I feel about that. Um, And in fact, we know that both within cultures and across cultures, groups or subgroups that have less obesity stigma have less obesity-associated disease, mor- morbidity, and mortality. It's not that they have less incidence. They're just as likely to get you know, diabetes or cardiovascular disease. But when they get it, it's not as harmful. It's not as likely to lead uh, to illness or disability or death um, if, they have, if they're living in a group that has lower obesity stigma. So that's interesting. But there's also beginning to be evidence, and it's just preliminary, I can't state it too strongly, but that the stress of weight stigma all by itself actually causes weight gain. So this is sort of an ugly, vicious cycle. Over on the right, you'll see what's called the cobwebs model. This is Janet Tamiyama's work. She's out in California. So cobwebs means cyclic, obesity, weight-based stigma model. Now, let me see if I can pull up my little pointer again. So in this model, you start with obesity or weight-based stigma. You live in a world that has a thin ideal and that isn't OK with obesity. And that stresses you out. That's not a pleasant experience if you, have, if you either are obese, or it turns out uh, we apply weight-based stigma to plenty of people who are normal weight. So if you're in some way exposed to this stigma, you have a family member with an eating disorder who's hung up on this, even though you're normal weight as a child, um, or you're not normal weight as a child, you become stressed. And stress, it turns out, has some pretty predictable effects that promote weight gain. One effect it has is in eating behavior. What do people do when we get stressed? Y'all have seen sitcoms. What happens when the you know, protagonist has her boyfriend break up with her? She eats potato chips. Yeah, potato chips. And what's the other thing she eats? Hagen-Dazs. Ice cream. <laughs> I don't know tell you about this. Increased eating behavior is a response to stress. What I always like to emphasize, it is not only a response to stress in humans. Animal models also show this effect. So if you stress out a rat, lab rat, you put a lab rat in a swim paradigm, which is stressful for lab rats, They uh, afterwards, they don't want Purina rat chow. They want lard and they want sucralose. So this happens in animal models just as much as it does in humans. Um, So there's this increased eating behavior in response to stress. Which, you know, like I say, happens in animals. It's pretty, pretty deeply innate. But even if you leave aside the increased eating that you might get with response to stress, it turns out, as you all know, stress has a biological response. You get increased secretion of cortisol. You get HPA uh, or hypothalamic-pituitary axis dysregulation. You get increased inflammatory markers. Are any of those things familiar to those of you who think about obesity? What do we know about that in obesity? Didn't I just list off the various things that happen with increased adipose tissue? Right? With some of the same problem? These things interact. That um, increased stress response, it turns out, promotes weight gain. And what kind of weight gain does cortisol promote? Central. Intros- yeah. You know, android, android obesity, abdominal obesity, that's what it promotes. Is that the good kind? Is that the kind you want if you're going to have obesity? No, it's what we know as the strongest negative health outcomes from uh, abdominal obesity. And it's caused not by your patient's behavior, but literally by this biological response. Um, and this, uh, there's two studies. This is really preliminary stuff. But there's two studies showing this association where um, there's already good evidence that obesity and weight-based stigma leads to stress and depression. That's, that's established. We know that. And we also know that stress... You know, not obesity weight stigma stress, but stress in general leads to these effects. There's only a limited amount of research showing all three parts of this model, but there are a couple of studies showing that... um, both among women who are seeking treatment for weight loss, uh, those that experience more stigma have greater cortisol secretion by using a number of different measures of cortisol secretion and greater oxidative stress than is predicted just by their obesity and by their age alone. Um, and also in an experimental paradigm where they showed both normal and obese, normal weight women and obese weight women, obese women um, video clips that were uh, of sort of. Fat jokes in media and sort of obesity stigma in media. And actually, for both normal weight and obese women, they responded to that. They said it was stigmatizing. They said they didn't want to look at it. And they had cortisol response to it compared to a control condition that watched, you know. Nature videos are a control, you know, not stigmatizing video paradigm. So there's some evidence of this, but it's sort of preliminary. But then this, of course, leads to weight gain. And this is also fairly robust. We know these things. And the weight gain leads to more stigma. So this horrible, vicious cycle that a person can get caught in. Um, and you don't want to add to it as a provider. You're not helping. This is that business of you're not motivating somebody to lose weight by adding more stigma or negative judgment to the situation. <laughs> So what do we do about it? And I actually am hoping we'll have plenty of time to discuss and talk a little bit about this, because I'd like to hear your ideas as well. But. Um... I can tell you the news is bad with respect to interventions. There is uh, one review article that, uh, as of 2010, there were about 16 articles about trying to uh, create interventions that would improve anti-fat bias in people in general, not necessarily health care providers. Um, and there have been a few more since then. And essentially, the news is bad. Interventions to address anti-fat bias basically don't work very well. Um, they're swimming upstream in a very difficult culture. I, can th- I know of only two studies that tried to de- decrease uh, uh, stigma in medical professionals, specifically. Both of them were aimed at students. One was sort of healthcare students in general, people that might be going on to nursing that kind of thing, and the other was in medical students. Both of them focused on teaching students about um, the uncontrollability of obesity and sort of uncontrollable causal factors in obesity, and neither of them worked very well. Um, so our research literature does not have a really good answer for us. but uh, And there's that, that approach of uh, teaching about the ways that obesity is not controllable, that is something that's been recommended. But like I say, we don't know. We don't have a good answer. Sean Phelan, in his review, did come up with, I think, some really excellent tentative recommendations in the absence of empirical evidence. So I'm going to share those with you if, if my computer doesn't shut down. Postpone. So he recommended that we should start by trying to increase provider empathy for obese patients, and I hope I've been able to do that for you a little bit today. He also said... This business of um, medical students in the ER saying that jokes about obese patients are fair game, this is not OK. We need to address this. That we should have zero tolerance in clinic, in the ER, in the hospital setting for stereotyping humor, for uh, negative judgmental comments about obesity in the medical setting. and. I love recommendation three. I think we should all all take it to Jim Weinstein's door, right? So reduce our RVUs and increase our positive affect, decrease our frustrations. That will help us act on our conscious attitudes rather than our implicit attitudes. That will help us all, and very much pro number three. (laughs) Um, uh, To encourage you, just as I did, to go and assess your implicit anti-fat biases so at least you know about it. Uh, And then... We're supposed to continue the numbering, but you see, my PowerPoint skills need a little work. Um, What should we do? This is an interesting recommendation, and I really would like to hear your thoughts about this because this is swimming upstream in our culture in terms of what we are trying to do in medicine. There are, you know, Medicare uh, is making recommendations with meaningful use. We have recommendations. You know, how many of you are aware of sort of increasing recommendations to talk about obesity more with your patients and counsel more? Raise your hands if you feel feel like the message is do it more. Yeah, so this is out there. And Sean says, and I agree with him, we should be doing it less. We shouldn't be focusing on weight and on BMI with our patients. That, in fact, we should be weighing patients only when we actually need to. Weighing them when we need to know you to calculate a dose of medication, for example, when we're actually tracking something specific. But that we don't need to weigh them at every visit. Um, And we don't need to weigh them even at every preventative care visit that we should be encouraging patients to focus on what they can control and uh, away from stigmatizing um, interactions, away from the stigma around weight. And one way we can do that is to focus on the health benefits of eating well, of exercising, quite apart from weight loss. If I'm normal weight, is it good for me to eat you know, five or more fruits and veggies a day and exercise half an hour a day? Yes, it's good for me. It's good for my mental health. It's good for my physical health. That's good for most of your patients. You can provide that information without talking about weight loss, without getting stuck in that vicious cobwebs model we talked about before. So you know, to to begin to do that, to begin to approach each of our patients and counsel them based on the health concerns they actually have, counsel them based upon what you know would be healthy for them as an individual, no matter what. If I have a BMI of 50, and I am, in, and presuming I am otherwise reasonably healthy and I'm engaging in physical exercise and eating five a day, is that good for me? Yeah, that's good for me, right? You know, this is good for me regardless. So you can provide these recommendations without having to focus on weight. Sean also thinks to really focus on that rapport building because that is damaged by the implicit and explicit biases. So using motivational interviewing techniques, using patient-centered communication, really staying present in the room, which of course is easier to do after we've all convinced Jim Weinstein to give us less caseload. Um, Making sure that your office itself is friendly, that chairs are friendly, that equipment is friendly, that everybody who walks into your office can use the equipment you have. And also that your artwork is friendly. You know, when I walk into your office and I look at the art on the walls or I pick up the magazines in your waiting room, what is that telling me about what kind of bodies are valued? When I began to do the Accept Yourself pilot work, which was now what, I want to say it was maybe in 2012, so it wasn't exactly a long, long time ago, um, I asked our art department here to make me a little, you know, recruitment brochure and a little recruitment... Pull off thing that I can hang. And I, oh my goodness, I asked them for artwork, you know, which is people usually, and they sent me all of these very unhappy, unattractive looking pictures, you know. And, gosh, if I didn't have depression before, I've got it now looking at my ad, you know, this won't work. But bless their hearts, this last time around when I had them do it again for this little randomized controlled trial I'm doing, now they have pictures of larger sized bodies, big smile, looking lovely on a bicycle, you know. These are images that I feel like I can share with patients. They're non-stereotyped images. They provide a positive image. That's what we need to be doing. We need to be When I look around your office, I need to see that all kinds of bodies are valued here. People of all ethnicities, people of all sizes, people of all ages. I want to see it on the walls. So, I'd be curious. We've got Yeah, we've got a little time. I'm happy to entertain questions, but even more than questions, I'd rather sort of have a a little more open discussion about, you know, what do you think? How does the, what do you know about how anti-fat bias is affecting your patients here at Dartmouth? We know from what I already shared with you that we're not exempt from these trends out in the culture. What do we do about this? How do we handle this? How can we be more welcoming and provide more effective care? And of course, I'm also happy to entertain any questions you might have. Go ahead. Um,
2: I, I thought it was interesting the uh, evaluation where fear became the major
1: yeah.
2: uh, piece here, and I'm wondering if that uh, sort of ties into this um, why implicit bias stays rooted because yeah. it leads into that sense of hopelessness both for the patient and the provider. Yeah, and it, it, it seems that you're recommending that sort of turning things, uh, turning our approach as. This mm-hmm. is a general practitioner mm-hmm. uh, towards the idea of um,
1: more hopeful living as yeah. opposed
2: to focusing on weight loss. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's data to look at. I wonder if your group that, uh-huh. that looked at that of you're very active uh-huh. obese versus you're very, very inactive, uh-huh. if mean, we know about long term health benefits uh-huh. of activity alone without weight yeah. change, because yeah. I think that's something we want to be able to counsel our patients in a way that's. Uh, hopeful, And for us, feels that like we are offering them something. Yeah. So it's important to sort of know what
1: that is. Yeah, I mean, I think in the best case scenario, that's why we're afraid, right? We're afraid for our obese patients, because we know the research and we're worried about their health outcomes, right? That's, that's why you would, if you could, would you wave your magic wand and give everybody a BMI under 25? Sure, of course you would, me too. Um, But what do we know about if you can't do that and if the patient can't do that? Uh, Tracy Mann is a researcher to look for. So she's done a lot of research on metabolically healthy uh, obese and overweight people. And I should tell you, you've heard me use the word fat today. Fat people, fat patient. You heard me say this? Provocative word, right? In general, I do use the word obesity when I'm presenting on research because all of our research uses CDC BMI cutoffs and talks about obesity and overweight and all this. So to be consistent with the research, I use the word obesity even though I don't love the word because it's pathologizing. It suggests that obesity is a disease. And I know the AMA voted and decided it was a disease a couple years back now, but they... um, did that against the uh, advice of their own advisory committee. So I'm with the scientific advisory committee. I'm a little bit of an empiricist. Um, So I do use the word fat because it's a simple descriptive term for body shape and size. Sort of like, when you look at your presenter up here, what would you say about my stature? How would you describe me? (laughs) i <laughs> all the way, towering, towering, I'm towering. It's like, whoever said that, you need to get your eyes checked. <laughs> you know? I am not towering. What am I instead?
2: Short. Sure,
1: sure. You would call me short. Are you worried about my self-esteem? Having just called me short? A whole room full of people, oh my God, y'all just called me short? Yes. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Maybe a little. But are you as worried as you would be if you called me fat? No. Not as worried as you would be if you called me fat. It's a simple descriptive term. You can use it pejoratively, hey shorty, you know, but it's not the same. I'm interested in reclaiming the word fat as a simple descriptive term like short. Um, so that's why I use it a That's a little aside. But in terms of what Tracy Mann's work on fat patients, she's found that there is a subgroup of metabolically healthy fat folks in the United States, about 20 million. So it's not a tiny number. Um, and that they have uh, the same health outcomes as metabolically healthy thin adults, which is, it shouldn't be too shocking. Um, what's different about those people? We don't necessarily know. Some of them just have good genes. It's not necessarily the case that they're all you know, meeting the you know, uh, USDA recommendations for physical activity or anything like that. Um, but what we can say is, hey, this subgroup of metabolically healthy fat uh, folks exists, and perhaps you could join it. You know what would it take for you to be metabolically healthy? Let's focus on your metabolic health and not so much on the number that shows up on the scale. Go ahead. I was just going to say,
2: you know, bias is deep and it mm-hmm. stems from childhood. Mm-hmm. It stems from yeah. We hear in the schools, you know, I have younger mm-hmm. children, so mm-hmm. they're already gaining classes yeah. from hearing. Uh, Their friends talk, it it happens in the home, what your parents Mm -hmm. say about people, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, obese people, whether it's blacks, Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. it is. You know, those biases are deep and and some of them are, you know, old tapes that Mm -hmm. are are very um, unconscious. Mm -hmm. And how do you get at? hmm what do you do about it
1: it's, yeah.
2: it's got you have to have self-awareness and it's work
1: yeah it's really tough and it and I don't have a good empirical answer for you like I say we've tried lots of the logical things and they haven't helped a lot I can give you a personal example Um, So, when I first started teaching and talking about fat acceptance, it was in the 90s. So I was really, this was a long, long time ago in my professional life. It was, you know, when I was at the very, before graduate school even. So this is something I've been working on for a long time. I first took an IAT to assess my own implicit weight bias, long about 2004 or 2005. And how do you think I did? Not so well. Not so well. You know, like everybody else in the universe, I scored. uh, It was mild, so it wasn't a strong implicit bias, but it was a strong, mild favoring of thin people over fat people, like most people score. Okay? So nothing unusual or fantastic about my score, even though at that point, for about a decade, I'd been working explicitly to combat anti anti fat bias. Um, Well, then the Internet sort of came along, right, and Facebook began to came along, come along, and I had a little more control over what media sort of came into my eyes. And I also gave up a television. So I didn't have a television, and now I'm now choosing. And I started to deliberately shift what came into my eyes to show uh, fat, attractive people. And you can actually, you know, go out and find that imagery more and more now, right? you are beginning to have, um, you know... There, we now have a supermodel who you know, signed to a milk model agency, which is a supermodel agency. She's a size 22, so that's something new. Uh, you know, so we start to have these images. Well, I went and took the IAT again when I started to do this uh, workshop. And now I've got a slight implicit bias in favor of fat people over thin people. Now, I don't know why, but I suspect it was that shifting of media. It wasn't the shift in my attitude, because that came a decade before but the shift in what I saw. And I think if we shift what we see and the artwork we put on the walls and what we're seeing in the waiting room, we will be helping ourselves and helping our patients. There was one more thing I wanted to say about the um, health issue. So there is research on an intervention called Health at Every Size, which is basically what I just described to you, focusing on health without focusing on weight for patients across the weight spectrum. And what we know about that is, it does seem to have positive health outcomes in randomized control trials, uh, in terms of improving lipids and inter- improving physical activity and improving metabolic, f- you know, improving cardiovascular fitness, things like that. And it has less attrition; people don't drop out the way they do in weight loss programs. So there's some empirical evidence that that's a good approach too. Go ahead. Well, I'm curious
2: of when your participants were interviewed, mm-hmm. uh, you shared a lot of their mm-hmm. voice, whether they had. Specific things they might suggest that the provider could have said
1: differently mm-hmm. to make the field? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little research on that apart from what we got. Our patients, I think, were just so astonished that the intervention didn't do the same thing they had before, that they didn't. They didn't give us a lot of recommendations. It wasn't really the focus. But in other research, the recommendations tend to be along the lines of um, health at every size, so don't focus so tightly on my weight. Ask me about my experiences. Be more patient-centered. Um, and also this issue of make your environment welcoming. Those are the kinds of things patients say. They say they don't feel like they fit in, so how can we make them fit in? let somebody else. Go ahead.
3: Well, that was really important point to hear. Thank you. I we all have to acknowledge that we have these biases. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can see lots of people with mm-hmm. issues that are related to that The two things I would add is, first, uh, I think providers always have to be aware. These are very charged office visits. Yes. The patients come with expectations, usually negative under the yeah. provider. Yeah, yeah. We often confirm them. Yeah. So we have to be really aware when we look at the chart before we go in. but to remind ourselves to not uh, not exhibit any bias, and yeah. I think that's really worthwhile. The second thing is I think we need a lot more humility. We have yeah. no idea how weight is regulated. Yeah, no, it's yeah. not a hormonal problem. It's a yeah. neurologic hormonal interaction that is vastly under, under uh, not understood, and simplistic notions actually harm the patient.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: I,
3: I think we need a lot more humility about our knowledge of we don't really understand how weight is regulated. Yeah, I made this point before. Why would it be simple? Right. It's incredibly important to the organism to maintain right. its weight. There are redundant overlapping mechanisms, and we just can't point to one mechanism like eating and say that the whole thing's going to be
1: slower. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we are exquisitely <laughs> evolved to make sure we don't lose weight. I mean, that's, as human beings, we're just exquisitely, carefully evolved to make sure that, gosh, starvation was a really pretty serious threat in our evolutionary past. And we are really carefully designed so that that doesn't befall us. And what I tell patients who come to me for behavioral weight loss is the average person in behavioral weight loss will lose weight initially and then gain it back and then some. So if you are coming to me for behavioral weight loss and I'm recommending behavioral weight loss, eat less, exercise more, if I'm making that recommendation, I am making a recommendation that if you are a typical patient, will cause weight gain. So I probably shouldn't be making that recommendation, right? Go ahead.
3: So on the issue of uh, addressing and eliminating provider bias, I, I don't know if this has been looked at, but it would seem like in the inpatient setting maybe a place where, uh, these biases can really get set, you know. So taking care of like a morbidly obese patient, which is going to involve a lot of work on yeah. everybody's part with the hoist lifts, and yeah. and then often the outcomes aren't that good. Will often leave the team and everyone yeah. involved in that care with a very sort of, uh, you know, like a post-traumatic event, yeah. you know. And so they'll they'll carry that with them yeah. in their future encounters yeah. with people who are just mildly obese, but after yeah. that experience with someone who was more you know, morbidly obese. Yeah. Um, I don't know if maybe those interventions would be focused with inpatient teams who have that experience. Yeah,
1: it's going to a- stay with them. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, and I think you get at why we're, we have problems with bias as providers. It's not so much that we hate our patients; it's that we hate when we can't help our patients. We hate when our interventions don't work, or when our inf- interventions are clumsy. You know, I can't tell you how many. I have a who's, a couple of friends who are surgeons, who talk about sort of just the physical difficulties of doing uh, surgery on an obese body, and you know, the fact that our, our equipment, our uh, you know, tools are not designed to do this work. We should be mad at the equipment and the tools, but it's it's easy to let that slip off onto the patient. Yeah. And I think it involves some paradigm shift for sure there. Go ahead.
2: So very uh, provocative and interesting, I thought your suggestion or your uh, elaboration on um, not weighing people from mm-hmm. yeah. the key um, or every visit. But then there's also evidence to suggest that we can prevent, uh, prevent age um, weight gain and. Uh, by weighing ourselves uh, every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so actually, I have started inviting my patients to get scared mm-hmm. and to start weighing and, mm-hmm. and I'm not overweight. And I uh, mm-hmm. mentioned that I do it myself because mm-hmm. there's evidence that it somehow subconsciously mm-hmm. does affect some of our eating behavior when we do so, <coughs> even without any plans of uh,
3: wanting to lose weight or not avoiding gaining weight. Mm-hmm. So so maybe, at least having this personal feedback, I suggest might be a uh, sort of valuable thing.
1: Interesting, and if you're finding it helpful and your patients find it helpful, I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I, I don't know the study you mentioned or the studies. I'd love to, you know, email me. I want to see the citation. I'm curious about it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Be careful of the mainstream media. All right, you got to find it and said, let's look at the scientific data. I'm really curious. What I would encourage you to do though is be very cautious. For some patients, obsessive weighing is an eating disorder trigger. It's Problematic, causes bingeing, not helpful. Go ahead.
3: On uh, uh, Observational uh, data. Uh, in primary care, I think many of us see uh conditions like hypertension mm-hmm. uh, and or borderline hypertension mm-hmm. and uh hyperboysemia diabetes, that there there's good correlation with weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and patients actually can point that out and just say, so, you know, eat healthy, take more exercise,
1: right.
3: are often able to do that. And we feel very good Yeah. preventing or delaying um, the progression of,
1: of that condition. Yeah, and, and there's no question, you know. And if you don't weigh that, Is is obesity associated with disease? Yes, there's no question about it. Is more weight associated with more negative health outcomes for a number of things, including hypertension? No question about it. Um, What I tell people is, can you have that discussion without weight in the equation? You sure can. Yeah, absolutely can. Because it turns out, is physical activity associated with improvement in hypertension? Sure is. Is eating a DASH diet you know, associated with improvement in hypertension? Sure is. Do I have to have that discussion to have weight in the picture? Not necessarily. You, you know better than I do your patients. You have some patients that can have this conversation, that find it useful. There's a minority of patients that engage in behavioral weight loss, lose weight, keep it off forever. God bless them. That's fabulous. But having that sensitivity and knowing that you can take the, the weight piece out of it and you're probably not losing much. You know, I, I, it reminds me a little bit, I've had the same discussion with my own physician. I'm hypertensive and I'm also, uh, according to CDC, overweight. Uh, so, a standard recommendation my primary care will say to me, I think you ought to lose a little weight. I always say to my primary care when this comes up, you know, a new, new doc or something, I'll say, well, you tell me the empirically supported means of my engaging in weight loss without gaining weight in the long term, and I will do it. And then he laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> and then I laugh, and that's the end of the discussion. Most you know? <laughs> <laughs> patients don't have your head. most patients. <laughs> but what I'm always fascinated by is I never get an argument. He always laughs. And I think the laughter is, you know, I've tried this with several different docs, you know, male and female, and they all laugh. And I think that what, what I'm getting back is sort of a sigh of relief from the doc, right? This sense of, oh, well, I'm glad I don't have to have that pointless discussion that I've had with the last 65 patients who haven't lost weight and kept it off as a result of my fabulous recommendation. So I'm glad I don't have to have it with you, you know? And I think that's what the laughter is about. If it's working, do it. I'm all for it. But for the patients with whom it doesn't work, don't do it,
0: you know? I think you engaged us in a really great discussion. Mm. Fabulous presentation. Right um, I would not. If, yeah. if you have time, that if others have questions, you'd be willing to stay.
1: Absolutely, I'm here. So if you'd like to talk a little more, here I am. Thanks so much for your attention. Oh.